We're going to be continuing not only our series in 1 Thessalonians, but also last week's message uh, where we uh, decided to just uh, stop at a good place and continue this week in the same message. And so uh, the first part of this message was entitled, uh, what was it entitled? Do you remember? It had to do with sanctification. I know that. A benediction. That's right. The whole passage was a benediction, a blessing, calling upon God to provide us with sanctification. And so if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And I ask God that you would open our hearts and minds to see the beautiful, wonderful things that are there in your word for us. Lord, we're not looking for new truth, but we are looking for truth that has always been there and which has been the foundation of your church from the beginning. Lord, sometimes your word uh, communicates ideas and insights and truths that are hard to understand, hard to follow. And Lord, today we are seeking uh, in those passages, Lord, that often are hard to follow. Help us by your spirit to see the truth that is being revealed in the grammar of these passages. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to pick up where we left off by examining a little more deeply what Paul means by the word completely. That you would be, as we read here, that he himself would sanctify you completely. And then he refers to, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to preface what I'm going to share today by reminding you that we have two entirely different scenarios in the story of our salvation. We have the scenario of the courtroom scene where God is dealing with us as criminals deserving of death. And our Lord Jesus Christ intervenes on our behalf by paying our debt to God and advocating for us before the Father and securing for us forgiveness. And then in that we are born again. We become children of God. We are transferred out of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of his dear Son, and now in that context, we are in the family room scene. And it's important to understand the difference. In the courtroom scene, we're dealing with justification. In the family room scene, we're dealing with sanctification. 
a process by which we become more and more like our older brother, Jesus, who is the firstborn among many brethren, many children of God, are now coming to God. And in the family room scene, God has requirements of his children. These requirements are not the law. They are the will of God as revealed by a heavenly father. Big difference. And that is why we find statements such as we'll see here today. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The courtroom scene has been settled once and for all. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are rescued. We are saved. Now we move to the family room and our Heavenly Father says, I want you to grow up. (laughs) I want you to grow to maturity as my children. And I want you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And you say, well, no, I don't have to do that because I'm not under the law. No, this is not the law. This is a heavenly father saying, I have good things in store for you. And they require you to reach a certain level of maturity in order for me to be glorified in and through your life. We bear the family name and we are to walk worthy of the family name with which we have now been adopted. So, as we look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, we read, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. He owns us, all of us, and there's no part of us that he does not lay claim to and require us to be sanctified completely. Now, this passage reveals the issue, or it brings up and confronts us with the issue of whether human nature is three-part or two-part, whether it's a trichotomy or a dichotomy. And it raises the question, does it even matter? I believe it does matter in the sense that by understanding the nature uh, that we have as human beings, redeemed human beings, uh, it will help us in the process of sanctification. It will help us know how to fight for holiness, how to stay focused on the purpose of God in, in saving us. And so I'm going to argue in this message that there are two or even three additional components between what we could call the bookends of spirit on the one hand and body on the other hand. And these additional components, the ones in the middle, if you will, are the part of us that takes sides in any given moment with either the spirit or the flesh in our battle to stay focused on fulfilling God's purpose. That there's a part of each of us when confronted with a temptation that is either going to yield to the Holy Spirit and walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh 
or is going to yield to the temptations of the flesh and walk away from the protection that God offers by his spirit and allowing us to at least momentarily indulge in sin, the the fleshly uh, lusts, as Peter calls them. And so the question then is, is, are the spirit and the soul synonymous? Are these just two ways of talking about the same thing? And there are many Bible scholars who take the position, because of the way in which spirit and soul are described and the way that they overlap one another in their functions, they've come to the conclusion that the spirit and the soul are synonymous, that they're one and the same. And so we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, that is, his physical body, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath, and the Hebrew word there is spirit, the spirit of life, and man became a living being, and the literal Hebrew is a soul. He became a soul. So we have at least the elements of three parts in this passage. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, we read, You shall love the Lord your God. This is the Shema of the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the question is, is our heart the center of our being, of our spirit? Are these two synonymous? or Are they distinct from one another? With all your soul. Well, that's pretty clear. The soul is your soul. And with all your strength. Now, the question is, is that limited just to your physical body? Or do we have emotional strength? Do we have spiritual strength? You know, do we have intellectual strength? Well, whatever strength we've got, we're supposed to use all of it. We're supposed to use all of it with loving God. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Now, there's no reference to the mind in this passage, but Jesus brings the mind into the sequence in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. And there we read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, if we go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 again, we find that everything that follows this Shema is, in, is instruction on how to be reminded of what we know to be the will of God. Bind it to your hand. Bind it to your forehead. Write it on the door frames and the posts of your, of your doors. As you come in and go out, you'll be able to see what you know to be the will of God and be reminded of what you're all about. And so Jesus takes all of those reminding references and just captures them and plugs them in here and says, love God with all your mind. And so he's not so much adding to the passage as he's simply rearranging the elements of the passage into this sequence. Now, if my heart and my mind are distinct parts of my nature, then I'm already up to three components in addition to the spirit and the body. That makes five. I'm not going to try to come up with a term for that. I was, I was playing with the idea of, of being a, a quadronomous when I had four, and I, I couldn't figure out how to, how to do the five part, so I just leave that alone. But the idea is there seem to be, in the scriptures, 
additional components, if I can use that term, little electronic uh, reference there, different processors that take the signal and they process it in certain ways so that what comes out the other end of the, of the process or the, the circuit board of our being uh, is love, love for God and love for one another. Now, the difficulty in dividing the soul and the spirit, as we read now in Hebrews, is what settled it for me that we are in at least a trichotomous state, that there's three parts to us, and that the spirit and the, and the soul are not synonymous. So read this passage here with me. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That was about as sharp as it gets in that particular time in history. Now notice what it says, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Evidently, that would be considered really, really hard to do. And this, the word of God is so sharp that it can divide soul and spirit. And then he goes on to say, and joints and marrow. And so we know that you know, your, your bones and the marrow in your bones are pretty well entangled. And to be able to separate those two would be pretty difficult. And then he, cons- he goes on to the thoughts and intents of the heart. What's the difference between a thought and an intent? Well, there's agency involved in an intent. A thought may not necessarily have any particular agenda. It may just be an observation of some sort. But the point is, these are so closely related to one another that it would take something really, really sharp to separate them. And it makes no sense to me that if, if the soul and the spirit were synonymous, then if they're just one and the same thing, it's not hard to just cut something in half. But if we have something that is so intertwined that it takes careful surgical skill to separate the two, then we're dealing with something else. The sharpness of the Word of God is displayed in its ability to divide what is very close together, but yet not entirely the same. If the spirit and the soul are one and the same, then in dividing them, we would just be a matter of cutting it in half, as I said. But evidently, dividing soul and spirit is like dividing conjoined twins. Now, we've got some kids here today. I'm going to show you a picture here that... uh, This is a very sad situation, but here are some babies that were born connected to one another at their stomach. And here we see them on the the right-hand side. They're healthy, happy babies, but they're conjoined. It takes tremendous skill and very, very high-tech instruments to be able to separate conjoined twins and allow both of them to survive. And I think that's a good picture of how wonderfully powerful and sharp the Word of God is. That it can even divide what seems to be indivisible. So, there are... As I study the Word, there are four what I would call processors that each have their own special effect on our love. 
And so we see in Mark 12:30 again, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I want to propose to you that this is how these four work together in processing the love of God, our love for God and our love for one another. Our spirit corresponds to our heart. It may be that the heart is the center of the spirit, the center of our being. This is the part of us that does our believing, by the way. You must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's not just your mind involved here. It's not mental consent or assent. It is your heart believing that God has raised Jesus from the dead and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, our soul corresponds to our emotions and our yearnings and our desires. And we see this all over the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. But this is the part of us that's capable of taking what we believe in our heart to be ultimately true and then turning that into a set of appropriate goals to fulfill the calling that we have to love God and to love one another. Our mind corresponds to our mental thoughts, our studies, our strategies, our running reconnaissance, our counting the cost. All of these things are mental activities that take those goals that have been set from the yearnings and the, compa- the passions of our soul that fulfill the purpose of our life that is seated in our heart and what we believe to be true. Our mind goes to work to come up with plans that would allow those goals to be accomplished and our purpose in life to be fulfilled. But all of that is an exercise in futility if we don't follow up with our strength. Our strength corresponds to our body's ability to exert force. You don't need strength unless you're, uh, you're confronting an opposing force. And so with strength, we're able to take those plans that fulfill those goals and that accomplish our purpose and actually bring it into expression in the real world where there is constant opposition to the glory of God. So loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength could therefore in practice be understood as loving God with our life purpose, our passionate goals, our informed plans, and our forceful actions. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody tells me they love me, but none of this shows up, I don't believe it's true. If you really love me, it will show up with heart, soul, mind, and strength behind it. And that's where the good stuff happens. So this would mean that keeping our focus on loving God, and just to remind those who maybe were not here last week, we understand holiness, again, in practice, to be a matter of staying focused on what we know to be the will of God. To stay focused, to not be distracted, to not be deterred by opposition, to not be defiled by something that's that's uh, vile. And so to, to be holy, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Okay, how do I do that? How about stay focused as I am focused? 
See, don't, don't let yourself get pulled off in every direction. You've been bought with a price. You've been set apart for a purpose. Now stay focused on fulfilling that purpose. So, the next phrase we confront in this short passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23b is may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless. First of all, blamelessness is not moral perfection. It is not perfectionism. It is a level of holiness that is achieved primarily by means of the sacrificial system. When a Jewish man had committed sin in the Old Testament, yes, he could repent. Yes, he could call upon God to forgive him. But the law of Israel required him to have a particular sacrifice for that sin and to go to the temple and to offer sacrifice. And every year, uh, the whole nation would, would, would be uh, forgiven by means of the shedding of the blood of a lamb that would take away the sins of the whole nation for another year. And so we find when John the Baptist appears in the New Testament and Jesus comes walking by, he points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's who Jesus is. So to be blameless is not a matter of achieving moral perfection and never ever sinning again, but rather of availing yourself of the grace that is provided through the gospel and to be able to stand before God in a righteous state, not because you are perfect, but because his sacrifice was perfect. And now you are hidden in that sacrifice. Your sins are covered. And so blamelessness is when no legitimate accusation can be made against us. And the accuser of the brethren is ready to make accusations. You don't deserve this. You know, you know what a scoundrel you are. And our response is not, oh no, I'm not a scoundrel. I'm a good person. No, I am covered by the sacrifice of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've availed myself of the grace that is provided by Christ's sacrifice. That's where our blamelessness lies. Now, it is a blamelessness that leads to personal sanctification. We begin to walk away from our past. We begin to take off the grave clothes, like Lazarus coming out of the tomb. You know, he's alive. He's in the tomb. He's alive. And we don't know whether he came hopping out or whether he came out, you know, just baby steps. But he's wrapped up in grave clothes. And Jesus doesn't say to Lazarus, take off your grave clothes. He turns to those who are standing by and says, help him off with those grave clothes. That's what fellowship is all about. It's, it's all of us helping one another walk away from our grave clothes and in, into a glorious life where we're covered by the righteousness of, of Christ and our Heavenly Father is bringing us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Our sanctification is progressing. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, we see this connection. He says, And you 
who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. How? In the body of his flesh through death. How have I been reconciled to God? Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. To present you, notice, holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. In his sight. Now, if you are counting on other people to affirm you as being a nice person, you're probably going to be frustrated. What we have is a salvation that is determined upon what Christ has accomplished by bringing us into a place of holiness and blamelessness and being above reproach in His sight. God is choosing to see us as those who are wearing the very robes of righteousness that are provided for us by Christ. And so in Romans 8 we read, Therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but rather according to the Spirit. We're going to come back to this passage later, but I want you to notice right now that the reason there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ is because we have been covered by the sacrifice of Christ. Ultimately, blamelessness is going to be a matter of God covering us in the robe of Christ's righteousness by his sacrifice so completely and so, so entirely and so endlessly that our imperfections will never be seen again. And our soul rejoices in God our Savior. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10 we read, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is what we have in Christ. We now are the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. Christ has finished it all. So God has saved my soul by forgiving my sin and covering me with the robe of Christ's righteousness so that I can come into the feast. Notice in the parables that, that the master of the feast provides robes for the guests. And one guy shows up in his gardening jeans and his, you know, he's filthy and and, and the, the master says, why aren't, you wearing, why aren't you wearing the robe I provided? I don't know. He gets cast out. We are only able to stand before God by the righteousness of Christ, by the robe of righteousness that we wear because of his sacrifice. So now let's get specific. Let's get practical. And unavoidably, let's get complicated. Okay, we're going to be trying to unscrew the inscrutable here for a few minutes, if we can do that. So how does God help us? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Do what? He will sanctify you completely. How is he going to do this? Well, he is faithful to deliver us 
from sinning by giving us a way to escape through the obedience of faith in Jesus. God gives us a way to escape. We find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You're not the only one going through this. These are things that are common to man. But God is faithful. There it is. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So there's a point at which God knows you would not be able, and he restrains this temptation so that it does not overwhelm you. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now notice what's going on here. You are bearing it. You are able. Sometimes, and I need to be careful here, but sometimes we let our systematic theology distort our reading of God's word. And say, oh no, it's not me, it's Christ. Yes, it is Christ. But it is Christ in me. Christ in me is the hope of glory. He's doing the work. And we're going to explain a little bit of how that works in a moment. But I just want you to see that it says you will be able to bear it. You say, no, I can't bear it. Only Christ can bear it. Don't try to be more spiritual than God. Okay? He says here, you will be able to bear it. And if that's the case, there's some part of me that is responding to the situation and I can respond properly or I can respond improperly and when I respond improperly I end up sinning. When I respond properly I end up bearing the fruit of the Spirit. But there's a part of me that God is working in and working through. And for me to try to be so spiritual that I'm lost in this picture is to distort the truth of the Word of God. You know, there's a ditch on both sides of every road. And the road of truth is one in which it's sometimes very hard to stay on the road because we're only thinking about falling into one ditch and we swerve into the other ditch. So we've got lawlessness on the one hand and we've got legalism on the other hand and the road itself is the Lordship of Jesus Christ as we walk in the Spirit in the obedience of faith. That's the road. Stay on the road. Don't swerve to the left or to the right. So, he continues, God will not allow you to uh, be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. With the temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And then he turns and says, therefore, therefore, because of this, beloved, flee from idolatry. Who's doing the fleeing? I am. By what power? By the power of the Holy Spirit in me. I can't do this by myself. But I don't have to do it by myself. But just because I don't have to do it by myself doesn't mean myself disappears. Okay? You see the the difference? Okay. Before every sin is committed by a Christian, and we're not talking about the unbelievers out there who are dead in sin. We're talking about living, believing Christians, born-again believers. Before every sin is committed by a Christian, 
There is a moment of decision in the mind of our soul. Can I use that phrase? There's a, there's a conscious thing going on in our mind, and it is the mind of our soul as to whether or not we're going to walk in the Spirit or indulge ourselves in what Paul calls fleshly lust. I think it's actually Peter who uses that term. But Paul has the same idea. And so, our temptations to indulge ourselves in our fleshly lust can be resisted. In fact, Paul, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, that means you're, you're just passing through here, you're on your way to heaven and to glory. He says, I, because you don't really belong here, I don't want you to get occupied. You know, it's like fraternizing, you know, uh, with, with the folks in the village when you're a soldier, okay? You know, you're here fighting a war, and you're going through this village, and there's this cute girl over here, and she's waving to you from the window, and, and the instructions of your commander is don't fraternize with the locals, okay? Don't get, don't get, in, don't get distracted. We've got a battle up ahead. Don't get distracted. So he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Your soul is being tempted in various ways. And you are to abstain from those fleshly lusts. And why are you to do that? Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers in the moment, in the, in right now, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I understand this to mean the Holy Spirit is going to move upon the hearts of these people that don't know God, who right now speak evil of you, uh, speak of you as evildoers because you don't go along with their sinful lives. But there's a time coming when God is going to move upon their hearts. He's going to visit them by His Spirit. And if they can remember you and the good works that they observed in your life, even spite of their meanness and cruelty toward you, that it will have an effect upon their coming to faith in Christ. Your, your faithfulness in this regard will adorn the gospel, as one author puts it. Now, what I think is going on here is Paul is saying, you should be motivated by the fact that the Gentiles are watching. Okay. The Gentiles are watching how you behave in response to this situation and you should be motivated to say no to sin and yes to righteousness because the Gentiles are watching and their souls hang in the balance. So, I think we can think of this as a three against one situation. I faced three against one in my lifetime. I got beaten up many times as a young person. Uh, in my current article, I tell the story about getting hit in the head with a tire iron in a fight with the Orchard Hill Boys. And it was me against three other rednecks. Okay, and uh, they won. They won. Three against one <laughs> always tends to win in this regard. So if my soul and my mind sides with the Holy Spirit in the face of a temptation, holiness will win. On the other hand, if my soul, my mind, if the mind of my soul, if you will, sides with my fleshly lusts, then sin will win. And so there's this point at which 
my soul mind either goes with the Holy Spirit or he goes with the flesh. And, it's, and, and I'm constantly having to decide to walk in the Spirit and not indulge the sins of the flesh. So that part of me that does the choosing as to whether I will walk in the Spirit or in the flesh is the decisive part in each battle against sin. Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to be completely sanctified? Then you need to focus in on this issue of these decisions that are being made just prior. At that point when you could flee, instead you stay. That's, that's the issue. You, you notice something, and you could just walk right on by, but if you stop and look again, you've made a decision, and it's a predictable consequence. Now, it's kind of like power steering. <laughs> this is not just for the guys, but it's a, in fact, my dear wife has a real story to tell about power steering. Uh, she was going down Borges Road over in the Gresham area, it's a wonderful road to drive on because it's got all these beautiful sweeping curves uh, and trees with little crosses on them for some reason. Okay? And her power steering went out in a suburban. And she is trying to steer this monster on these curves. You know, she has her brakes, but she's got her uh, like this, uh, like that, trying to stay on the road and not hit the trees. Power steering is, is, is a wonderful thing. <laughs> when you have it, life is good. You know, you can go zipping through those curves and have so much fun. But when you lose your power steering, suddenly everything gets really, really hard. Okay? And so, like power steering, there is a servo unit under the hood of my van and of your vehicle, if it's a newer vehicle that actually turns the wheels to the right or to the left with what is known as power steering. Now, all my hand is doing, I can even use you know, one finger on my steering wheel. And I can, I can go this way and I can go that way. But all my fingers are doing is sending us an electrical signal to the servo unit under the hood. And it's that servo unit that's actually turning the wheels. That's why when the servo unit stops, suddenly I have to literally turn the wheels with my steering wheel, and that is really, really hard. So, in this analogy, I want to be careful that we don't get the wrong idea. The power steering only kicks in to help me when I choose to do what is right. When I choose to sin, I get no help from the Holy Spirit in committing that sin. This is a very, very picky servo unit, okay? It's only going to help you do what's right. And when you choose to do what's wrong, you're on your own. And life gets really hard really fast. So I want you to think of temptation to sin in those terms. If I try to do what is right in my own strength without trusting in and depending on the Holy Spirit, life is also going to be very hard, even though I'm a Christian. A lot of Christians are trying, I think the term we've used around here is white-knuckling it, right? I'm trying so hard to be good. Well, you need to trust in the servo unit of the Holy Spirit 
You choose to do what's right, and the Holy Spirit comes in with power to help you make those turns, right? But if you choose to sin, you sin on your own, and you have to do the, you know, the hard steering because you don't have God in your corner in that case. In fact, God's going to stay right where he is. And so if you ever feel far from God, I want to ask you, who moved? Right? You walked away from him. He didn't walk away from you. And so this issue of power steering helps us to think about how these things work. Now, let's take a look at how this works in practice. Got the whole slide here at the same time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, we are told, flee sexual immorality. Okay? Now, the part of me that chooses whether or not to flee sexual immorality is somewhere between my spirit and my body. My body, in its carnal desires, wants, to, wants sexual immorality. Okay? My spirit wants to be pleasing to God. I'm a child of God. I have a new heart. I have a new spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. But now somewhere between my, my physical body and my spirit, there is this part of me that's making the decision. It's, it's got its hand on the wheel, and it's, it's choosing which way to go. So God tells us in the scriptures, by example and by, by statute, not to try to stand up and fight against uh, sexual temptations. The commandment is to flee. The example is to flee. So instead, we should be like Joseph. We are to flee the tempting situation, not stay and try to resist it. And there's a very good reason for that. Now let's look at Genesis 39, verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were inside, that this woman, Potiphar's wife, uh, caught him by the garment, saying to him, come lie with me. Okay, let's, let's have sexual immorality. But he left his garment in her, her hand and fled and ran outside. Now, she then used the fact that she's holding on to his garment as evidence that he had come in and tried to force himself upon her. And he goes to prison because of that. It's all part of God's plan. He's going to end up being the prime minister of Egypt. But in the meantime, he's going through this adventure of, of his faith being uh, growing and becoming stronger as he goes through these trials. But I want you to notice that Joseph did not stand there and say, no, no Potiphar's wife. No, I will not sin. No, he, he ran. He said, well, that sounds very cowardly. That doesn't sound very manly. No, what's not manly is staying and allowing yourself to get aroused. As soon as you get the briefest, least, tiniest bit of arousal, your body begins to be empowered, and it begins to seduce your mind into a deception that what you're doing is okay. And there are so many, I mean, as a pastor, when you're doing counseling, with a man who's done something horrible, and you say, well, how could you ever possibly do that? Well, it, it seemed like it was okay at the moment. Uh, it was later, afterward, I felt so bad, I wanted to go out and kill myself. I was so sorry, I, I just hated myself. But in the moment, my body was telling me, this is okay, there's nothing wrong with this. Horrible things are done 
when you're in that state of what I call temporary insanity, where your body is aroused and your mind betrays you, and rather than choosing to walk in the Spirit, chooses instead to indulge the flesh. And so that is how what seemingly good people can end up in prison because they do things that are absolutely stupid. And in the moment, it seemed like it was okay. I, I made it very clear to all of my sons, you know, when you're with somebody and you start to experience arousal, get out of there. Flee sexual temptation. Don't try to fight it. Don't try to withstand it. Don't ask yourself, well, what will people think if I just get up and leave? Well, they don't, it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> if you stay, you may very well throw your life away and the lives of others will be seriously harmed. So, well, that's interesting. I had my animation in reverse. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. So now let's look at staying focused. One way to preemptively flee from sexual immorality is by occupying yourself completely with fulfilling your personal obligations in life. Okay? The, God has ordained what we would call means of grace. And these means of grace put you into relationships in which if you stay in those relationships, you are far less susceptible to the temptations of sin. You know, and I'm going to be specific here. Not, I don't think we have anybody here who's right on the edge of this. But, you know, when you're starting to get a little older, you know, like 17, 18, 19, 20, moving out and living on your own in your own apartment alone is walking away from the network of relationships that God has ordained to help you avoid yielding to temptation. You know, people sometimes feel like it's some rite of passage to have your own apartment. It's so stupid in so many different ways because it's more expensive, it's more exposed to the world, there's little or no accountability. Now, if, you, if for some reason you have to move out and you're going to maybe going to college, then get into a house full of like-minded, zealous Christians and, and have a Christian discipleship house where you're going to recreate this network of relationships that will help you stay on track and stay focused, okay? Uh, but don't just go out there and say, hey, I'm going to get my own place, and then nobody's there to watch me and what I'm watching. <laughs> nobody's there to confront me when I'm doing things that, that they would be absolutely appalled at if they knew. See, so don't, don't walk away from these responsibilities, these family relationships, neighborhood relationships, okay? But let me give you an example from Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, we read, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle. What are kings supposed to be doing at this particular time of the year? They're supposed to be going out to battle. Okay, that's a king's job. Okay? It says at that time that David sent Joab and his servants with him 
and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The author of this passage is being very, very clear on what's going on here. He remained at Jerusalem. Number, verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And thus begins the story of David's sin with Bathsheba, not just in committing adultery, not just in getting her pregnant, but also having her husband killed in battle in an attempt to hide his sin. This is serious stuff. If David had been where he was supposed to be, he never would have been tempted to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Having a a set of responsibilities and in joyful, eagerly, enthusiastically fulfilling those responsibilities is part of the way that God protects you from seeing, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, seeing the wrong thing, getting involved in the wrong way, and perhaps even ruining your life and the life of others around you. And so these are ways in which God is faithful. He will do it. He will protect you. He will help you to be completely sanctified. And we know that when Christ appears at the end, the job will be completed when we see him as he is. Now, this battle is always raging between my spirit, my soul, my body, my mind, and my body. We see this in Romans 7. This is where things get a little complicated because Paul is going to walk us through his own internal battle. So let's just walk through it with a little bit of comment, but just mainly just to see it. In Romans 7, verse 5, For what I am doing, I do not understand. Now some would say that Paul is describing his situation before he was a believer. But that does not make sense, but he's describing wanting to serve God and wanting to love God, and, and that's not the way unbelievers who do not know God are going to be talking. But he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. There are good things I should be doing, and I'm not doing them. But what I hate, that I do. I'm doing things, and I hate myself for doing them. If then I do not, uh, if, if then I do what I do not, I do, <laughs> I hate this passage. Okay, it says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. I ought to be obeying that law. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, so there we are. 
The I in this passage, in me, who wills to do what is good, I believe is our, our soul mind. Okay? It's that part of us that's got its fingers on the steering wheel. Okay? Now, the sin that dwells in my flesh, uh, it's not every appetite. It's the twisted versions of our God-given appetites that are the problem. We do not serve a God who says, do not have sex. We serve a God who says, that is reserved for a lifetime commitment in marriage. I want all the young people to listen up. That is only for a lifetime commitment in marriage. Nowhere else. And if you are wise, if you believe that God is both good and wise, then you realize he has good reason to tell you not to get involved with anyone until you are actually married to them. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, but I won't go into all of that right now. So it's the twisted, sinful versions of these God-given appetites. We have to eat food, but our fleshly lusts would turn us into gluttons. Okay? We, we have to dress ourselves, but our twisted uh, fleshly lusts would have us spend exorbitant amount of money on, on clothing and jewelry and makeup in ways that are absolutely foolish. And so we have instruction in God's word not to do that. But our fingers are on the wheel. Will we turn the wheel in the direction of walking in the spirit? Or will we turn the wheel in the direction of yielding to and fulfilling our fleshly lusts. And this battle will never end in this life. Okay? There's no point at which you become so spiritual that this battle is over. In fact, the last battle in the most spiritual life is a battle with spiritual pride. You know, because you're such a good person and you haven't sinned lately. And so Satan says, man, you are really good. You are really good. You are, you are so holy and we fall. Pride goes before a fall. So Romans seven twenty one, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. That would be a reference to my spirit, my soul, my mind, my inward man. But I see another law in my members. That's my physical body. Now, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's my physical body. He then cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I see in this verse 25, not just an exclamation of praise, but also a definition of means. Okay, How am I going to be set free from this body of death? The answer is, it's through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is your Savior who has died for you, and who, who has set you free, has given you liberty. But now use that liberty under the lordship of Jesus Christ 
And that will bring you into a place of walking in the Spirit. Therefore, he says, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we have here this this trichotomy of being in me, and my soul stands in the middle. My spirit on the one hand, my physical body on the other hand, I am warring uh, with these temptations that war against my soul, and my soul has to choose moment by moment to walk in the Spirit. I choose that. You say, well, that, doesn't that give me a basis for pride? No, you're not saving yourself. You're just walking in wisdom. Okay? This is not adding to your righteousness at all. This is simply sparing you the agony of seeing your life and the lives of others ruined by sin. You get to do this under the Lordship of Christ. That's why Paul can say in one place, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are useful for the purpose for which God has saved me. And so I don't use my liberty in ways that are in conflict with the whole purpose of God rescuing me out of these sins. So, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So when my soul and my mind teams up with my fleshly lusts of my physical body against that inward man, that's my spirit and the Holy Spirit, I end up doing the things that the Spirit doesn't want me to do and that I really don't want to do, like Paul said. I end up failing to do the things that my Spirit wants me to do and I end up uh, not doing the things that he does not want me to do. Or I'm lost in all that... Like I said, this is a complicated part of the passage. So let's take a turn here. What is turning my mind to the Spirit? What part of my being is doing that? Well, Paul gets specific in the continuation of Romans chapter 8. Now take a look at verse 3. For what the law, that's the law of Moses, the law of the Old Testament, could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. See, the law could make me sense what was right and wrong, but it couldn't give me the power to actually do it, at least not consistently, and not do it for the right motives. It could, only, it could only inform me of what a wretch I am. But he says, but God did this by sending his own son, notice, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came in a physical body. He was born in Bethlehem for this reason, so that he could be the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sin. He sent his son In the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. And notice it uses the word might. It doesn't say will. It says might. Is that important? I think it is if there is an element of my choices involved in availing myself of this grace that has been purchased for me by Christ. I now have a means by which to walk in the Spirit. And I might walk in the Spirit, (laughs) but there is no guarantee I will because I consistently have to make these choices either to flee or not flee. So he says that I might might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but 
Instead, walk according to the Spirit. Now, notice what comes next. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Do you see that? Two against one, three against one, always win. So he says, those who are in the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Uh, But those who are in the spirit uh, live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded, that's to mean fleshly, you know, carnal means meat, your body, your physical body. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But notice this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, I hope that Paul and I have not thoroughly confused you at this point. I hope that you can see the the train of thought that runs through this passage. We're dealing with the battle going on inside of ourselves, and it has to do with whether or not we're going to side with the Spirit and say no to the flesh, or we're going to side with the flesh and say no to the Spirit. And that deciding element, I believe, is what is, requires a trichotomous understanding. It's the me that's really me choosing which way to turn the steering wheel. And if I turn it in the direction of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, the servo unit, the power steering of the Holy Spirit comes into play And I find that walking in righteousness is not a burden. It's not difficult. I'm trusting in God, and he's the power behind my my decision. But when I choose to go in the other direction, life gets really hard. I no longer have the power of the Holy Spirit helping me as I go through the twists and turns of life. So a saved soul has the power of the Holy Spirit to be spiritually minded. Now listen for the echo of this passage uh, of what we've just read as we look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit. And Luke read this today, didn't you? Just Yeah, this was just before. I'm so glad because this is a key part. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust of the flesh... For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You cannot be entirely satisfied, because your flesh is always dissatisfied if you walk in the spirit. And you cannot be satisfied in sin, because your spirit is always dissatisfied as you walk in the flesh. So, but if you are led by the Spirit. You were not under the law, so you're not, it's not an issue of you trying to earn your salvation. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath or anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, 
envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. There's other stuff he could add, but he decided to just let it go at that. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now we're going to close very quickly, but I need to read this passage. I beat my body into submission. That's King James. New King James Version is a little, little more nuanced. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, we read this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That means there's moderation in your diet, moderation in your sleep, everything. You, you don't uh, indulge yourself in ways that would undermine your ability to be competitive in this race. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Literally, it was a, a little wreath of, of leaves that only lived for, you know, they only looked good for a day. And then they wilted. But boy, you could wear them, you know, and people knew you won. Pretty cool. But then he says, but we, and it's implied do it, for an imperishable crown. So what, what is it that we do that they do? We compete for the prize by being temperate in all things. That's what they do, that's what we do. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. I know where the goalposts are, okay? I'm not running around the field in every direction. I'm running toward the goal. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. This is not shadow boxing. This is landing blows that make a difference. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. That's where in the, in the King James it says, I beat my body into submission. <laughs> Strong words. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what Paul understood is that as a saved soul, he now has the opportunity to pursue a prize that can never be lost, that will never perish. But in order to win that prize, it requires him to be holy, to, to be, you know, staying focused on God's purpose for saving him. This is the family room situation. This is not the courtroom. This is where the Heavenly Father says, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Focus. Train yourself. Be hard on yourself, especially your physical body. 
in order to be able to go for it and win the prize. Salvation of your souls is the goal of all of this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to be to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end or the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The faith that I have in the very heart of my spirit saves my soul and empowers me to take dominion over my body and make it my slave. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would use these uh, passages of your word, as complicated as some of them are, even as hard to read as some of them have been, that your spirit would illuminate our minds and help us to see the truth that's there and to understand how we can stay focused and pursue holiness and peace. And we give you all the praise and all the glory, and we ask that you'd help us to walk this out in our daily lives, to be constantly making the decision to turn the wheel in the direction of the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.